Hi, everyone, and welcome to Murder and Merlot. We are a true crime book club podcast. I'm your host, Tara. And I'm your host, Michelle. How's it going, Michelle? Oh, it's a going. Living life in the closet again. (laughs) Living life in the closet. Thought you were going to say fast lane, but that's definitely not how it's going right now. (laughs) No. But uh, we're doing pretty fucking great because Billy Jensen shared us on Instagram. Fucking commented on our post. What? We freaked out. <laughs> there, yeah, there might have even been tears. I was so excited. Yeah, I'll admit that I got a little teary when I was um, Snapchatting Michelle and I was screaming. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So My husband looked at me and he was like, what is happening over there? <laughs> I'm very happy that I was alone in my home when I discovered that because I kind of freaked out. Uh, I wasn't alone and I freaked out. So yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Thank you, Billy Jensen. (laughs) Thank you. We hope you're listening. I doubt it, but hey. (laughs) Hey, whatever. Uh, It's just crazy that, I don't know, we talk about these people. You don't ever think that you would actually interact with them. Not that we really like talk to them or anything, but like he noticed us. It's crazy. He noticed us enough to share us in his story, which was like... So freaking cool. Yep. And he liked her post and he commented. So, yeah. So exciting. Oh, no. So, that was like the highlight of my life. (laughs) 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 Pretty sad, but it's true. Hey, when you do a true crime podcast and a true crime celebrity comments on your post, it's a big freaking deal. It is. It's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. There's also some other news. Yeah. Talk about the shit that we saw today. Yeah, I'm like scrolling through the Instagram, of course, because I'm now Insta-obsessed. Thanks, Billy. Um, (laughs) And I see Gary Ridgway's face, and it's like, he's going to get out of jail. What the hell? Uh, Hold on. (laughs) He's he's not getting out of jail. There was a potential because of COVID-19 that um, Washington State was going to release some prisoners, prisoners over 60. There's like a whole bunch of categories, but... um, yeah, for him you to know. even be considered is yeah. insane. Like, no, right. <laughs> that's it, not how it, this whole jail sentencing thing works. Like, <laughs> no, like he he's seventy one. He would have been like if it had passed, he would have been released potentially. That's insane, but yeah, I have only- seen I have seen like people. I don't know. I can't think of an example at the moment other than like fucking six nine, the stupid rapper. But like I've seen people getting out of jail because of this COVID thing. And it's wild. It's crazy. And you know, if Gary Ridgway dies of COVID-19, is that the worst thing that could possibly happen to humanity? Nah, I'm, I'm here for it. (laughs) Yeah. Sounds horrible, but who better? Right? Yeah. (laughs) No kidding. Yeah. He's not getting out. I'm yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It definitely got downvoted, but (laughs) fortunately, yeah, I don't know. It would kind of be righteous if he did die from COVID because, like, pneumonia probably feels like drowning almost. And, you know, yeah. victims were, you know, mostly in water and shit. So, yeah, hey. I've had pneumonia. It doesn't feel good. Yeah. Oh, you can't breathe? It doesn't oh. feel good? Oh, oh, no. Oh. The poor thing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Are we bad people? No, no. No. He's bad no. people. He's, yeah, he's a bad dude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyways, that was pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. 
a little unsettling. Um, I also wanted to talk about um, hair updates from our last episode. <laughs> oh, yeah. The COVID hair. <laughs> the COVID hair. Remember when I said, I'm not going to cut my hair. <laughs> you cut your hair. <gasps> I cut my hair. <laughs> did it for the TikTok. Nice. <laughs> How short did you cut it? Nah, only a couple inches off, but it's okay. It's fine. It's a little jagged, but it's okay. <laughs> Just call it edgy. It's edgy. fine. It's, this is my teenage phase again, remember? I'm right? reverting. Yeah, this is my edgy yeah. uh, layered haircut. So Yes. yes. And you well, also. <laughs> yeah, I tried to dye my hair purple. Uh, <laughs> how did that go? But it, well, it's a temporary like conditioner that like adds color to your already colored hair or just brings out some highlights. So it made my hair feel fantastic. Well, that's good. And my scalp looked a little purple, but my hair, not so much. It's looking very brown. Yeah. I did my daughter's hair though, because she's a blonde, so it was going to stand out better. Yeah. And it's so cute. It's just like the softest, like light purple oh, it's color. Like lavender. Yeah. Cute. And I'm totally going to do it again, because she's just like a little diva. She's like, blow dry my hair, color it. <laughs> so much fun. <laughs> so it's so not cute. working on my hair, but you know, I'm going to have fun with her, so... Nice. That's awesome. <laughs> it's so funny how like hair or like your outfit can just change who you are. <laughs> you look at all. I know. She's <laughs> just like, oh yes, work it. Such a little diva. I love it. Mm -hmm. Wonder where she gets that from. <laughs> her dad. <laughs> True. <laughs> Des the diva. <laughs> oh, I'm not gonna play that part of the podcast for him. <laughs> oh come on. <laughs> Uh, I just know what his reaction would be anyways. He'd just roll his eyes and walk away. <laughs> oh, oh, you girls. Yeah. Such a dad thing to say. I know. <laughs> All right. Well, we should probably jump into this. Yeah, let's do it. So today we are covering the first half of the book, If You Tell, by Greg Olson. And this one is insane. It's ridiculously insane. Whew, buckle up. Wow, it's not okay. But <laughs> but we're yeah. going to talk about it. Yeah. So, all right, friends, grab your glass, get cozy, and let's book club it up. Tink, tink. By the way, I have two drinks for this episode <laughs> because it's a doozy. It's needed. Mm-hmm. So, If You Tell is the story of three sisters who suffered years of horrific abuse at the hands of their mother that escalated into captivity, torture, and eventual murders of three other people, and the girls eventually escaped from their hell at home. And before we get right into it, we wanted to put a warning out there that this episode contains graphic depictions of abuse to adults and children. It's impossible to discuss this story and the case without delving into the nitty-gritty of it all, so please, please listen with caution. And if you are a victim of domestic violence or abuse, or suspect that it may be happening to someone you know, please reach out to the Child Abuse Hotline, 1-800-387-5437, the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-7233, call 911 if violence is in progress or imminent, or contact your local police or RCMP detachment for assistance if there's not an immediate concern for you or your, someone else's safety. For example when you're in a safe place unknown to the abuser. Nice. Thanks for All putting right. that in there. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. I thought it was important. Absolutely. With that, 
out of the way, um, let's get started. Terry, you chose this book. What drew you to it? And what were your feels while reading? Well, honestly, it wasn't on my radar at all. I had never heard of the book. Um, however, it was just released in December of 2019, I believe. Um, but when it was time to pick our next read, I went to, um, oh, what is it called? <laughs> Why can't I think? Audible? Yes. I wrote down audiobook and I'm like, that's not the fucking name. <laughs> Audible. Um, yes. Yeah, so I went to Audible to find something as I was still in quarantine and I wasn't sure when I would be able to get my hands on a physical book. And this one just kept popping up. And I thought the cover was intriguing. It's a very soft and cloudy scene with what looks to be some trees and an old farm in the distance. And then under the title, it reads, A True Story of Murder, Family Secrets, and the Unbreakable Bond of Sisterhood. Um, but the description was very vague. And all I could gather was, from it was that there were these three sisters abused and tortured by their sadistic mother. And I really had no idea what to expect, but for some reason, I just kept coming back to it. And it was just intriguing. I think it was just kind of a mystery. Like, I really want to know more about this. So, yeah, I'm so glad that I, I did come back to it. Cause yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's, I, I knew nothing about this case beforehand. So it's no. really, How? really, really interesting. How yeah. is this not talked about more? I know. Yeah, when you sent me the name, I looked it up and I was immediately caught by the synopsis, like you said, mm -hmm. but I had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. Nope. Once I started, I could not put it down. I haven't read a book this fast in a long time. It's both awesome and terrible all at mm -hmm. the same time. Yeah, absolutely. The entire time I was thinking, how could this possibly get worse? And how is there that much book left to read? what is going to happen? I, like it, it was crazy, but it just, I know. it just kept going and going and I just kept reading and reading and it kept my attention the entire time, which is really something because I get distracted easily, but this had oh, my me full too. attention at all times. It was very well done. Yes. hundred percent. Um, so this book was written by Greg Olson, who is a Number one, New York Times and Amazon Charts bestseller author who has written more than 30 books. Known for his ability to create vivid and fascinating narratives, he's appeared on multiple TV and radio shows and news networks. Both his fiction and nonfiction works have received critical acclaim and numerous awards. He is a Seattle native who lives with his wife in rural Washington state. And most importantly, follows us on Instagram what yeah <laughs> so shout out to craig who i decided we are now on a first name basis with and go give him a follow at greg olson uh g-r-e-g-g-o-l-s-e-n or for more information about him you can visit his website at www.gregolson.com it's amazing so exciting so so exciting yeah so hopefully he's listening that would yeah. be awesome. That'd be so super cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I definitely don't think this is the last book of his that we'll read. No, not at all. I, I just want to dive in and look at all the things that he's Yeah. Had. I've uh, looked up some of his other titles and there's a bunch more that sound as excellent as this one. So nice. Yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. Excited yeah. to look into those. 
Yes. So the dedication says for Nikki, Sammy, and Tori. And the author's note reads this. Shared memories are like jagged puzzle pieces. Sometimes they don't exactly align with complete precision. I've done my best to put all the pieces of this complex story in the most accurate sequences possible. In the instances where the narrative includes dialogue, I used investigative documents and recollections from interviews conducted over a two-year period. Finally, for reasons related to privacy, I elected to use a pseudonym for Laura Watson's first name. Can you imagine reliving the details of this case over and over for two years? I have so many questions for Greg. Like, how did you, just like you said, it's a puzzle. How did you piece that puzzle together so perfectly? Like, I know he, it's, he did a beautiful job. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's, let's tell you our story. Let's do it. So Michelle, who usually goes by the name Shelly, Lynn Watson, Rivardo, Long Notech, one hell of a name, miss, mm-hmm. um, was, <laughs> was raised by her father and stepmother in Battleground, Washington. Her father, Les Watson, owned and operated two nursing homes with his mother, as well as the bowling alley in town. Les Watson married Laura Stallings in 1960 after meeting at the bowling alley where they worked. Laura was 10 years younger than Les, but didn't find this out till after they were married. She also didn't know that he'd been married before or that he had three children with his ex-wife. She quickly discovered this the day after their wedding when Sharon Todd Watson, the ex, called and demanded to know when they were coming to get the damn kids. Les had apparently promised that he would raise his children since their mother was a depressive alcoholic. So they took in two of the kids, Shelly, who was six, and Chuck, who was three. The youngest, Paul, was still a baby, stayed with Sharon for the time being. Shelly was a beautiful girl, but even at the young age, that young of an age, she controlled her brother. Chuck didn't speak at all. Shelly spoke for him only. And the more comfortable she got, the more terrible things came out of her mouth. She told Laura that she hated her every single day. After Sharon dumped the kids off, she basically disappeared. She never called or wrote or made any effort to see or contact her kids. In the spring of 1967, the Watsons received a call from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. It was a homicide detective, and they were informed that Sharon had been murdered in a shady hotel room, and they needed someone to identify the body and pick up her little boy, Paul. They went to California and learned that she was living with a man on Skid Row. They were drunks and homeless, and Sharon had been beaten to death. Later, when Shelley was told about what happened to her bio mom, she didn't care or even react. She was 13. Life was not easy for Laura Watson playing stepmom to three children with shady backgrounds. Chuck still did not speak unless Shelly put words into his mouth. And Paul was basically a wild animal with no impulse control and no social skills. But Shelly was the most difficult of the bunch. Les and Laura had two children of their own as well in the mix. The parents did really try to focus on family and spending as much time together on weekends and holidays as possible. However, if they wanted to do something that Shelly didn't want to do, she made life for all involved hell, screaming, starting fights, or just simply refusing. She was crafty at creating excuses and lying. Laura would try to do nice things for her, like set out her clothes and breakfasts for her at night so she had a bit more time to sleep in before school, only to discover later that Shelly would go to a gas station on her way to school and change her clothes, leaving the clothes that Laura had picked for her abandoned there. Shelly was always mad about something. She eventually morphed from disruptive and ungrateful to dark and vengeful. She resented her siblings or anyone who got attention over her. 
One particularly sadistic memory of her childhood vengeance was that she used to chop up bits of glass and put them in the bottoms of her siblings' boots and shoes. Ugh. Messed up. <laughs> Screwed up. Uh, Shelley's paternal grandmother, Grandma Anna, was apparently very, very similar to Shelley in that way. Everyone was afraid of Anna, and Anna had a particular distaste for her daughter-in-law. Anna and Shelley were thick as thieves, though, and when Shelley didn't turn up home after school, she could be found at Grandma Anna's. And Anna would tear into Laura, saying that she was neglecting her granddaughter, and she would stay with her for a while so she could get a proper meal and be bathed correctly. One time, Anna cut off all of Shelley's long, beautiful hair as punishment for Laura not, be, not brushing it properly, even though it was Shelley who would scream if her stepmother even came close to her with a hairbrush. When Shelley was 15, she accused her father of raping her. She went to a school counselor, and she was sent to a detention center in Vancouver, Washington, while the crime was being investigated. After a physical exam, it was determined that Shelley had not, in fact, been sexually assaulted by anyone. It was just a tactic to destroy her father's reputation and control her family. She was released on the condition that she be seen by a psychologist. Counseling sessions were, of course, a waste of time because Shelley refused to interact at all. She also had been kicked out of her current school, and other schools in the area refused to take her on her reputation. She eventually went to go stay with Laura's parents in Hoodsport, Washington. She was manipulative and awful to them the entire time she stayed there as well. She started babysitting for neighbors while she was there, saying how much she loved children and caring for them, only for the parents of the kids she was babysitting to return home from their evening out to find their littles still in their clothes, full of stories of how Shelley barricaded them in their room with large furniture so they could not get out the whole time they were gone. That makes me never want to hire a babysitter, ever. No kidding. These were just the first of many family members that Shelley went to stay with while finishing school. Each family was the unsuspecting victim to her manipulations and abuse, and ultimately each family was slowly broken by her actions, some able to repair the damage once she left and some not. Shelley met Randy Rivardo in the summer of 1971 when she was 17. They dated through her senior year in high school, which was taken in Murraysville, Pennsylvania, while she was staying with her aunt and uncle. When she returned home to Washington, she convinced Randy to join her. Her dad made him a maintenance man at one of the nursing homes and gave him a rent-free apartment. They were married in February 1973 and moved into the Watsons trailer, again rent-free. But Shelley hated it. Soon after they were married, she began ditching work due to extreme menstrual cramps that lasted a whole month. <laughs> yeah, that's how that works. Not, not at all. No. <laughs> uh, she was fired multiple times, eventually just not even pretending to try anymore. Some of her other manipulations were telling people that she was attacked in her home, even bloodying her own face so that she could move out of the trailer she hated. Taking a couple of aspirin and then pretending to collapse, saying she'd OD'd on sleeping pills as a suicide attempt so she could get a new car. Oh my Classy. God. <laughs> Can I interject for a second? I just yeah, absolutely. Think, think it's interesting. People always talk about nature versus nurture. And mm -hmm. this one I can't quite figure out because she does have, you know, a past of, you know, her biological mother and all of that, it probably wasn't a great situation at home. And then also the influence of her grandma, Anne, or Anna, yeah. whatever. But yeah. she's just so evil that it's hard to believe that it's just nurture that made her that way. Exactly. You know? I, like, I don't know what happened to her before the Watsons got her, but... Right. right. We don't know that previous history, but 
yeah, I mean, she's very young and already doing very manipulative things to people, putting horrible things. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, I just thought that was an interesting thought to how people get this way. I really don't know. I definitely thought about that too while I was reading it. I was like, her family loved her. Like they Mm -hmm. did everything to make her happy and there was no making this girl happy. No. Um, So moving on. Shelly gave birth to a daughter in February of 1975, a beautiful baby named Nikki. Within a few months of being parents, Randy and Shelly got divorced. And then she took off, leaving Nikki to be cared for by her grandma, Laura, for almost a year. Shelly showed back up and professed her love for her daughter and then took her back. Not long after this, a man named Danny Long moved in with Shelly and Nikki, and Shelly was pregnant for the second time. They were married in June And another daughter, Sammy, was born in August of 1978. Two marriages and two daughters by the time she was 24. Shelley and Danny's relationship was volatile, and they were often verbally and physically abusive to each other. After five years of marriage, Shelley was divorced for the second time. In 1983, Shelley found another man, Dave Notek, and she packed up her girls and moved to Raymond, Washington. Dave Notek met Shelley in a bar. And a few days later, he went to visit her where she was living, in her grandma Anna's old house in Vancouver, Washington. From there on out, it was weekly that he would drive up to see her and the girls. Shelley was having money trouble. She was about to lose her grandma's house, and she needed a savior, or a scapegoat, whatever you want to call it. She quick claimed it over to Dave, but it was still lost to foreclosure. She then told Dave that she had cancer, and she likely wouldn't make it to 30. And if he wasn't already sucked in before this revelation, he sure was after. He adored her and her girls, and he couldn't imagine what would happen to them if their mom was to die. The two were married in Raymond on December 28, 1987, with Shelley's best friend and hairdresser, Kathy Loreno, standing up for her. Things are going to get really nasty from here on out, so strap in. Just before they moved was the first real memory Nikki had of her mom trying to hurt her. She had been sleeping and woke up not being able to breathe because a pillow was pressed over her face. She screamed for her mom, and immediately Shelley was there, telling Nikki it was just a bad dream. As soon as they were married, Shelley immediately started berating Dave, calling him worthless, claiming he was a terrible father, and if he loved the girls, he would work harder, and he needs to make more money. He was completely passive and submissive to her. Shelley would get violent with Dave, hitting him, screaming at him, shoving him, She separated him from his family and established complete control over him. He worked away, and that was what saved his sanity, but also made him completely oblivious to the terrors she was inflicting at home. After he returned home, after any of the multiple fights, Shelley would be sweet and affectionate. He never knew how long she would be like that until the cycle started all over. Dave and Shelley moved their family into a large rental home in Old Willapa, which they referred to as the Louderback House, named for its original owners. The house was at the end of a long driveway that went past farmland, and the house sat up on a hill that backed onto a forest. This was the place where all the bad started. The kids and Dave quickly learned that Shelley could turn anything into a weapon, spatulas, fishing poles, electrical cords, anything that she could get her hands on to beat them with if she perceived that they'd done something wrong. Quote, when she found a punishment that worked, she looked for ways to make it even more effective, more brutal. The act of beating her children seemed to fuel and excite her. She seemed to savor the rush of adrenaline that came with being on the attack. 
It was wincing Gross. that whole time. I know. It doesn't make me feel very good. Shelly would usually do her disciplining at night. Her girls would be sleeping peacefully, and she would get mad about something, and she would go and attack her defenseless children. Children who learned to put on extra clothes before bed in case their mom dragged them out into the yard in the middle of winter. The abuse wasn't just physical. Shelly used mind games as well. She would tell the girls that they were useless or losers or anything else nasty she came up with, and then she would act like everything was perfect, showering them with presents. Within days, of course, all the presents would be taken back and the viciousness returned. As they got older, Shelly's cruelty grew. She told the girls that the well was going dry, so they weren't allowed to shower, and they needed to ask permission to use the bathroom. The girls continued to be hopeful that her mom would one day just stop, even as she created more new weapons of torture. One of her favorite punishments was what Shelly called wallowing. She would make them, usually Nikki, get up in the middle of the night to remove her clothes, and she was forced to squat in the mud, while Dave, the only person she really knew as a father, sprayed her with the hose at Shelly's command, often for hours on end. And this happened year-round. Can you even imagine? No, that's awful. Yeah, it's the worst. Terrible. In 1988, Shelly's nephew, Shane, came to stay with the Notech family. He was a city kid from a rough neighborhood. His dad, Paul, was a member of a biker gang and heavy into crime. And his mom was a drug addict. It seemed like an excellent opportunity to have a normal life living with his aunt's family. He soon realized that maybe life on the streets would have been better. He was immediately put to work. He was used as slave labor for Shelley. She always had chores for him to do, and he worked around the clock. His belongings that he had brought with him soon disappeared, and he was made to sleep on the floor in his basement room without a pillow or blanket. He had his shower privileges taken away, and he only had one set of clothes to wear to school. Shane and Nikki were only a month apart in age, so they became each other's closest confidants. But as such, they were often abused together. They were berated, beaten, and embarrassed together, often as little sister Sammy watched. They were forced to strip naked and slow dance in the living room while being heckled by Shelly and watched by Sammy, and sometimes Dave. The nudity wasn't ever sexual. It was about power. It humiliated her victims while also stripping away their identities. Ugh. <laughs> it's just going to get worse from here, folks. <laughs> I know. Uh, Christmas of 1988, Shelly announced that her friend, Kathy Lorena, would be moving in. Shelly was pregnant with her third baby, Dave's first biological child, and said that Kathy didn't want her. <laughs> wow. Have some more wine, Michelle. <laughs> like a glitch in the matrix. <laughs> Shelly was pregnant with her third baby, Dave's first biological child, and said that Kathy's family didn't want her and that she was going to help her with the baby. Kathy was 30 years old. She was a hairdresser and had recently let, been let go from her job at the salon. She was very grateful to be taken in by such good friends. Shelly told her how much she needed her. She needed help with her medical treatments because of the cancer. Right. Cancer. Help with the baby and help with the other kids. Kathy had been a people pleaser and a giver her entire life, and being needed by the Notex felt like an honor. Too bad it was less honor and more nightmare. Tori Notech was born in June of 1989, and Shelley told her family that she was a preemie with underdeveloped lungs. Shortly after they returned home, Shelley announced that Tori had stopped breathing, but she was able to revive her. 
They returned to the hospital where they stayed for a week for monitoring. Tori wasn't actually born premature. She was born a week before she was due. Shelly told her older daughters that Tori had heart problems that needed to be watched, so she had a special bed and special monitors. And every night after the girls had gone to bed, they would be awoken by Tori's mother screaming. They would rush downstairs to see their mother cradling the baby, looking terrified. And I'm pretty sure I said Tori's mother, but I didn't say Tori's (laughs) monitors were Mm. screaming. I didn't even catch that. (laughs) Yes. One time, Nikki arrived downstairs to witness her mother holding a pillow over Tori's face. The alarms hadn't gone off yet, but still Shelly said, she's okay now. I cannot. Yeah. This scenario makes me think of two things. Obviously, straight up Munchausen by proxy. Right? Like, she pretends to be a caregiver, but she's inflicting the the pain. And then, yeah, no, it's all good because I'm here and I'm helping. Um, But second, it makes me think of the multiple cases where there's mothers that kill their children and then they get away with it and do it to multiple children throughout their lives because of SIDS, which is Mm -hmm. sudden infant death syndrome. And there's multiple cases where like there's five children in a family or eight children in a family and they all mysteriously died of SIDS. So that's what made me think of that. (laughs) Yes. Just makes me so, so angry. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Having a baby was just another tool in manipulating her family. Throughout all of this, she was still playing the cancer card, telling her stepmom that it was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and then changing her diagnosis to cancer of the pituitary gland. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you can see how those seems seem to le- be confused. <laughs> seems legit. Yeah. Um, Kathy started to change after moving in with the Notex. When she arrived there, she was big and brassy and fun. She attended church regularly and played in a softball league and would gather the girls together, and they would laugh and share stories. But soon her spirit was broken. She began to fade away. She would do whatever Shelly asked in a very subservient way. And if Shelly was displeased by Kathy, she would grab whatever was closest to her and hit her friend with it. She would tell Kathy that it was all her fault that she was getting beat. She needed to work harder and do better. Kathy would apologize, and then Shelly would hug her and give her some pills. Shelly would tell Kathy that she would sleepwalk at night and hide food under her bed. Food that Shelly planted there. She manipulated and gaslighted her friend to maintain control and gave her cause to be beaten. She told her she was fat and wasn't losing weight because of her nighttime habits. One time she told Kathy that she was sleepwalking naked in Shane's room and forced Shane to agree. The kids learned to agree with their mom. Shane had been told to call Shelly mom, so this refers to him as well. Or they would be on the receiving end of the beatings. Kathy's belongings started to disappear. Her clothes were all taken except for a bra, a single pair of panties, and a muumuu. Then the muumuu was gone. Then the underwear. She was forced to do her chores in the nude, had to ask for permission to use the toilet, and wasn't allowed to bathe, unless Shelly said she could. And even then, she had to clean herself with the garden hose in the yard. All the while, telling her that she loved her, and she wouldn't let anyone hurt her. While Shelly had a new target in Kathy, the kids weren't hardly being punished, so they learned to turn a blind eye to Kathy's torture. And while they weren't being physically hurt, they were made to inflict pain on Kathy. And if they didn't do what was asked, they would be forced to endure cruelty worse than what they were told to do. Shane was made to do the worst of Shelly's bidding to Kathy, and Shelly would then do things like make Kathy hide in a closet saying shit like, don't worry, I won't let Shane get you. You're safe here. 
What a monster. Mm-hmm. Kathy began to deteriorate, losing weight, teeth falling out, bruised and broken, hair chopped brutally off, but she refused to let the kids help her. She knew that if they did, they would be their mother and father's next victims. She was being tortured, and she was trying to protect those children. What a good human. She did not deserve this. The family would occasionally go camping, and if they did, Kathy was forced to ride in the trunk. She was the person who had to set up the campsite, the tents, the beds, and whatnot, and then she was made to sleep on the ground under the car. She was often forced to ride in the trunk and left in there for hours on end. Shane and Nikki talked often about why Kathy was so compliant to Shelly and how she'd seemed so normal when she moved in and now how she didn't seem like the same person at all. They knew that Shelly was giving Kathy pills, so they investigated what was in Shelly's medicine cabinet. They found lorazepam, atenolol, Altace, Paxil, and Prozac, all prescribed from different doctors across Pacific County and filled at multiple pharmacies. Shane started trying to run away. Every time he did, Shelly would put all the girls in the car and they would search for him until they found him. And when they did find him, his punishments would be worse than those that he received before he ran. The longer he was gone, the harder he was searched for. Shelly always found him and she was able to coax him back by telling him how much she loved him and how much the girls loved him. Kathy's torture continued. Her room was moved from the hallway between Sammy and Nikki's room to the furnace room in the basement. She was pushed down a snow-covered hill, naked in the middle of the night, over and over again, until the snow was streaked with blood. Pushed by Dave, but directed by Shelley, who was angry at Kathy for something. And her family, who tried to contact her, was told that she had left with her boyfriend, Rocky. All the while, growing weaker, her skin sagged where it used to be firm, her teeth that were left were black, and her eyes just stared off into the distance blankly. In the summer of 1992, the Notek family moved from the Lauderback house to a 1930s farmhouse in Manhattan Landing. The property was five acres, fenced, and secluded. Although it sat close to a main road, the house and yard was nested in complete privacy from neighboring eyes. There were a number of outbuildings on the property, including a chicken house, a pole building, and a rickety old barn. The house was small. It only had two small bedrooms, a computer room, master bedroom, and only one bathroom. Shane slept on the floor in Nikki's closet with only a blanket, and Kathy slept on the floor in the living room again with only a blanket. The kids were put to work doing yard work and chores, painting buildings, while Shelly sat on the couch watching TV and eating chocolate. Shelly would make a point out of embarrassing her children in front of her school friends, even showing up at Nikki's school, screaming that she stole her mascara and ripping apart her locker. But Kathy always got the worst treatments. She was forced to bath with the outdoor hose, and instead of using soap, Shelly would pour bleach on her. And to prevent the neighbors from hearing her screams, she had duct tape put over her mouth. Dave was un under the understanding that Kathy's health was improving, but she was sleeping in the pump house to protect her from the kids. Shelly made Dave believe that the kids, especially Shane, were abusing Kathy. And let's face it, Dave only saw what he wanted to see. Kathy did try to run a few times, but it was, was always brought back to the farm and always punished for running. Eventually, she was locked in the pump house almost constantly, unless Shelly wanted to inflict some sort of punishment on her. Dave was mentally beaten down by his wife. She told him what a shit husband he was. He agreed. He worked away and felt guilty that she was raising the kids on her own and he wasn't there. But he was putting in 16-hour days doing manual labor construction and then coming home every weekend to be berated by Shelly and do whatever tasks she told him to do. 
his paychecks went directly to Shelly since she needed to pay for her medical bills and household expenses. So Dave just continued to work his ass off and not see any of the reward from it. If questioned about whether or not her cancer was real, Shelly would promptly go and cut clumps out of her hair or shave off her eyebrows so that it was obvious her treatments were necessary. Dave struggled with what was happening to Kathy, but he didn't have the energy to argue with Shelly, so he just took her word as law. He willingly helped beat the kids if Shelly said they deserved it, but he just watched Kathy deteriorate as Shelly told him many lies about how she was getting better. Everyone in the no-tech house besides Shelly and Tori, because she was just little and couldn't see what bad shape Kathy was in, were afraid that she may die, but no one dared call an ambulance for fear of what kind of trouble they would get in. The day Shelly discovered human feces in a Tupperware container on our kitchen floor next to a weak Kathy was the day that Shelly escalated things even farther. It did not matter to Shelly that Kathy had been denied the use of the toilet, so she was going to have to do her business somewhere. She got Dave to build a big seesaw, and a bucket of water was placed at one end of the board. Kathy, who was naked, was strapped to the board face down with duct tape, and at his wife's instruction, Dave lowered Kathy's head and face into the bucket of water. The kids were forced to watch as Kathy was repeatedly waterboarded. What the actual fuck, man? So messed up. And Dave, the whole time, like, because it sounds like he was interviewed for this book and everything. Yeah. The whole time he's like, oh, I, I didn't know it was that bad and blah, blah, blah. You built a torture device. Right. You assisted in torturing this poor woman. Like, you don't. I'm sorry. Dumb shit. But you are at fault as well. Obviously, Absolutely. she was the mastermind, but you're following through with these things. So, exactly. Unfortunately, we can't use the phrase, yay, Dave, in this case. No, <laughs> we, no will, we cannot. We will retire that phrase for now. <laughs> for this podcast, yes. Yes. <laughs> I wish I could say it stops here, but Shelly just got worse from here on out. After the poop in the Tupperware incident, Shelly was in overdrive, finding new ways to torture her friend. She would put rotten hamburger and vegetables in a blender, then force Kathy to drink it. She made her eat a cup of straight salt. She continued to keep her locked in the pump house with minimal clothing and with wounds all over her body for months. She was so weak she needed help to stand or walk, and her breathing was labored even just sitting. She had lost over 100 pounds since moving in. One day, Shelly decided that Kathy was going to come back to the house for a bath or shower. Kathy could not even speak at this point, but could only moan. As Shelly and Sammy tried to get Kathy in the tub, she slipped and the glass shower door fell and shattered around her. She tried to get away from the glass, but just wound up rolling in it, slicing open her legs and abdomen. Her daughters remember Shelly seeming scared at this point and she immediately started talking soothingly to Kathy. Shelly told her that she would be moving back into the house and made Kathy a room in the laundry room. Once she was back in the house, it was very evident that Kathy had suffered some brain damage, as simple tasks that little Tori could do were not possible for Kathy to do. Shelly wouldn't let anyone help Kathy with anything, saying that she was just lazy and that they were enabling her. Kathy could not speak. She just gurgled. She couldn't stand and her only movements were tracking people with her eyes. Dave arrived home from work one day after the glass incident in July of 1994 to discover strange sounds coming from the laundry room. It was a soft moaning punctuated with a gurgling sound. 
Shelly assured him that it was just Kathy and she was fine. She left shortly after this conversation with Sammy and Tori to pick up Nikki from work. More sounds from, from the laundry room made Dave check on Kathy while Shelly was out. Kathy was lying on the small mattress in the laundry room and she had vomited and she was choking on it. He called for Shane, who was in the kitchen at the time, and asked what was wrong with her. Shane said he didn't know. It was evident that Kathy could not breathe, and the two men got her on her side and attempted to clear the vomit from her mouth and nose. Dave attempted CPR. He gave her the Heimlich maneuver, but he was not successful in reviving her. Kathy Loreno had died. When Shelley arrived home and Dave informed her of what happened, she couldn't seem to understand how such a thing could happen. Shelley, after yelling and arguing with Dave outside for a while, while her children were left in the house to discover the body, packed up the girls and headed to a motel. She left the girls there saying she would be back and they were not to speak to anyone. Meanwhile, Shelley returned home to instruct Dave and Shane what to do. Dave retrofitted the fire pit with heavy, heavy gauge tin and steel to hold the heat in, and using wood from the old barn, he started a fire. Shane and Dave carried Kathy's body to the fire and put more wood on top of her. Dave added old tires and diesel fuel to the fire, and Shelley added, adding in what was left of Kathy's belongings. In the morning when the fire had cooled and it was only ash and bone, he loaded all of that up into buckets and drove what was left of Kathy to a couple of different beaches and dumped her in the ocean. When his family returned home, Dave just sat there smoking cigarettes. Shelley made sure that everyone in the family knew that if anyone said anything about the events of the previous night, that they would all be going to jail. Shane and Nikki were given the job of sifting through the burn pile and picking out any of the leftover pieces of bone. After three days of sifting, Shelley was satisfied that there were no pieces left. The next time Dave came home from work, he borrowed a backhoe and scraped down two feet into the burn pile and took the dirt out to an old logging road and distributed it there. And later, the Notech family planted a garden in the place where Kathy Lorena was burnt. So that's where I'm going to end today. <laughs> <laughs> that takes us up to the end of chapter 24. 34. Yeah, 34. Sorry. <laughs> and I feel like I need a shower because that was awful. Reading yeah. it, it was horrible writing it, and it makes me kind of sick having said it all out loud. Fair enough. Well, you did a great job. And yeah, I know that that's not easy. And next no. next time it's my turn to talk about all the, the gross all shit. The <laughs> 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 but also keep in mind that there's a lot more detail that we did not mention here. Like so much. Like there was so much more. Constantly Shelly was coming up with new ways to torture and humiliate the kids and Kathy and everything like that. But there's only so much that we can mention. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the tip of the iceberg, really. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, while I've been at home self-isolating, I thought, you know, it's the perfect time I can night train my kids. So I've been getting them up to go to the bathroom before I go to bed. And so most nights I would read my book until whatever time and then get them up. And while they were up, I would just hug their sleepy little sweaty bodies because A, I needed the cuddle and B, I could not imagine anything happening to them, even remotely similar to this. And C, because no matter how badly I think I'm screwing up, I'm a thousand times better of a mom than this horrible piece of shit. Hell yeah. Like, <laughs> like hands down. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Thousand times better. Yeah. Oh, yeah. what do you, what do you, um, 
feelings <laughs> feelings um feelings. it's honestly just so messed up that these are real humans i know i, I think going over the details are brains just automatically categorize it as fiction because it is just so hard to comprehend that this is happening to real people and it's real people that are coming up with these horrible torture methods and everything and not only thinking of those things but also but actually implementing it and forcing it upon people yeah and being so manipulative that you're able to force other people to do it she's always making other people do her bidding and her abusing and then twisting the story, you know, oh, Shane's the one that's, you know, doing this to Kathy and she's the one taking care of her, but that's, yeah. he's only doing it. So it's not happening to him. Like Shelly had Kathy so terrified of Shane that she would cower if he came close to her. Yeah. But Shelly was the puppet master the entire time. Yeah. Yeah. There was even one time that Shane tried to help her. Like Shelly was gone and she like Kathy was locked in the pump house or whatever. And Shane was like, this is ridiculous. I'm going to let her out. He went and unlocked the door and he's like, you need to go. And she's like, get away from me. Yeah. She's like, I can't like, yeah. He's like, please go. You know, you need to get out of here or basically you're going to die. And she's, she wouldn't do it. No, but yeah, Shelly is a a straight up sadist and like honestly, one of the worst human beings on this planet. Yeah. I hate her. I yeah. physically hate her. Yeah. And we're not even through all of it. This is only half oh. of it. <laughs> There's yeah. more to come, unfortunately. Way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So much more fucked up shit to come. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I think we need a little fluff and stuff, Tara. Yeah, fluff and stuff. A little fluff and stuff. So let's end this on a lighter note. Today's question is, what do you do to decompress after learning about a heavy story such as today's? Good question. I've been thinking about decompressing a lot lately. (laughs) Um, I guess when it comes to like true crime stuff, like this kind of stuff, I would say that I decompress by watching Grey's Anatomy while doing crafts or painting because that's what I like to do. Uh, So that's one thing or the office. Sometimes I just (laughs) revert back to watching the office again and again. Um, so that's one thing, but just life in general. Oh my God. (laughs) Just (laughs) threw my pen. I'm sorry. (laughs) I talk with my hands a lot and sometimes it gets out of control, (laughs) but life in general, the reason why I was thinking about decompressing is because that's what I've been doing a lot. Now that it's nice out, it's spring. I've been able to go out after work and enjoy the really nice, calm evening. So that's like my number one way of just clearing my head and making things feel normal again is just going out Mm -hmm. in the middle of nowhere, just me and Hank, and just having a relaxing walk outside. And then the other way, the only other thing that helps me do that is soccer, because that's what I've done my entire life. But right now I can't play soccer because of this whole crazy COVID thing. But yeah. Anyways, those are the ways that I decompress. I love it. You excellent. Um, I also fresh air, fresh air, fresh air, sunshine. Mm -hmm. Oh, helps me. Um, I do yoga. My cousin is a yoga instructor, and I love her yoga classes so much. And she's got some recorded, and so I've been able to do those a lot. And um, honestly, snuggled up watching movies with my kids. Oh. Usually with the two of them, like piled on top of me can make anything better. So yes, <laughs> yes. 
That's fantastic. Yeah. And uh, make sure you answer our question as well, because we want to know what do you guys do to decompress um, after I threw the other half of my pen. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> may want to say that part again. <laughs> you bet. I'm just going to sit here with my hands on my lap and I'm not going to move. <laughs> Make sure to answer our question as well. Also, um, obviously, let us know what you think about the episode. And yeah, for sure, let us know what you think about or how you decompress after reading stressful true crime stories or just in general, because I think we all need to decompress a little bit right now. Absolutely. Um, you can email us at murderandmerlot at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at Murder and Merlot Podcast, Facebook at Murder and Merlot Podcast, and Twitter at Murder and Merlot One. You can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts. We would love if you subscribed. And if you don't, you're dead to me. (laughs) And part two of If You Tell will be out on May 14th. And that is going to be my episode. I'm going to bring it home. (laughs) Woo. (laughs) Talk about some more shit. Yes shitty human beings yeah so don't be like her (laughs) yeah don't don't do that (laughs) do those things i mean i shouldn't have to say it but apparently there's people out there that need to be told just be a good human that's all we ask just be a good human agreed (laughs) yes all right friends (laughs) we're signing off now Cheers, friends. Cheers. Cheers. (laughs) Bye. Bye.